Hello, I'm Simon Rimmer, and this is the Return of Grilling, a podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which world-famous chefs, yes, Angela, discuss their passion for cooking. I'm going to take our guests back to where it all began and find out what inspired them to get into the profession. We'll learn about their unique processes and serve up a few simple tips along the way to help improve your skills in the kitchen. We'll also be talking about outdoor cooking, of course, and how to get fantastic flavours from your barbecue. And our legendary recipe challenge is back. Amongst those we've spoken to in our first run with Tom Kerridge, the Hairy Bikers, Marcus Waring, Nadia Hussain. So be sure to check those interviews out if you haven't already. Now, to kick off season two, we're grilling Angela Hartnett. Born to an Irish father and an Italian Welsh mother, Angela learned to cook when she was pretty young, preparing meals for the family when her mum worked late. Now, despite developing a love of food at an early age, she studied history at university before honing her skills at Midsummer House in Cambridge and then bizarrely in Barbados. She joined Gordon Ramsay in 1994 and has since opened her own restaurants for Michelin stars, also been awarded from MBE for service to the hospitality and catering industry. <gasps> And it's a big arsehole fan. Angela, <laughs> welcome. How are you? I think my greatest achievement is the Arsenal fan, to be honest, given our legacy recently. I know. Well, in fact, let, let's actually start with that because I think you and I became close friends. Yeah. A Liverpool Arsenal game. Yeah. I forget, we'd, we'd done something together. It might have been Great British Waste Menu or one of those something things. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we talked about kind of, you know, our, our love of football. And yeah. Liverpool will play in Arsenal a couple of weeks later. Why don't you come up? I'll get yeah. you a ticket and we'll go. So so we go to Liverpool Arsenal game. And then afterwards, I had a pass to kind of one of the lounges. And and Andrew, I've always thought up to that point, was very kind of quite reserved, quite <laughs> sort of like, you know, uh, quite sort of, you know, traditional kind of mission star chef that, you know, play, keeps their cards very close to her chest. Anyway, so we're in this lounge afterwards. And in, in the in the lounge, in the Carlsberg lounge, then whoever wins man of the match gets to come in. And Stephen Gerrard won man of the match. I have never seen... <laughs> But to that point, Angela Hartner squeal like a little girl at the excitement of having your picture taken with Stevie Stevie G, Stevie G. And the best thing, I was living with one of my best friends, Karen, who's a massive Liverpool fan, yeah. loved being there and still talks about it to this day. Big lawyer in the city, had the picture in her office and friends have come in and one friend came and go, oh my God. And Karen goes, yeah, I know, Stevie G. She's, no, no, that's Angela Hartner. And Karen's like, get out, out, out. You know, it's just, but that is one of my greatest football moments. Oh, that was bless amazing. You. I know. Well, it, it was I don't think he was fun. impressed. These two women in their 50s giving him a hug as opposed to. I've never seen that. All right, well, let, let, now, now we've established kind of like our, our friendship, if you yeah. like. Let's go back to the start. So, you know, we, we talked about in the intro about, you know, your background. So what was what was life like growing up then? Where were you? Um, we grew up in Kent, uh, a, a place called Hawkinge near Folkestone. Um, my father was in the Merchant Navy. So it was, that's where he was based. And, you know, obviously my mum and everything. Unfortunately, he died when we were quite young. So I wasn't eight. My, father, my brother wasn't 10. And my sister was a bit, she was not even one. So, you know, wow. that left my mum widowed obviously very young um and then so as a result we moved up to be near her family my father's family both who lived in Essex um my grandparents on my mother's side lived there and grandparents on my father's side um so and hence we moved up there and we basically lived down the road from my mum's mum and as an Italian family on that side of it as I was the eldest granddaughter I got to have all the chores. So if Nonna needed hand shopping, it was me. It was my brother, two years older than me. It was always me. If she needed help cleaning, it was me. If she needed help cooking, it was me. And that's how you sort of grew up. You were asked to do it. You didn't ask questions. You just told what to do. 
looking back, I sort of think, oh, God, as a kid, I always used to think, oh, my God, you know, you want to watch Grange, you want to go out with your yeah. mates, but I had to help Nonna. Uh, but now I look back and I think actually there were some of the best times with my grandmother that we had such a great relationship that we'd always, you know, I'd cook with her and then her and I would sit down and whenever we made pasta, we were the first ones to taste it because after we'd made it all for the family, it had all been in the freezer, then we'd try our little bit together. And just her fridge, I always laugh with her daughter, my aunt, who has got the same habit whenever you went in my grandmother's fridge there would be things in, in little bowls covered with a saucer because she never threw anything out. Yeah. You know, she thinks she's a war generation child. You know, she lived through the First and Second World Wars, so never wasted a thing. And, you know, you'd always see a little bit of sugo, a little ragu, some, you know, lovely poached fruits. You know, there's always something delicious in the fridge to nibble at. And I go to my aunt's as her daughter and it's always like soap prunes or something really healthy. And I'm like, Viv, really, this is not the anticipation I've been used to as a child. You're really disappointing me here. So how old were you then when you, when you had to do chores? Well, I suppose, so we moved up when I was just about to start secondary school. So from about 11 years yeah. old. So 11 to 16. And, you know, we, we were an Irish, Italian, Catholic family. So, you know... Not religion was a big part of it, but we I went to a convent school. You know, we had to sort of, you know, you, you were brought up to be respectful of your elders, as you should be, and all the rest of it. So it never felt like a big deal. And we were very close. I mean, that's the thing. We were really close to my aunt and uncle. And there's always a great story. I always I told my nephews years later about how it is to have that relationship with grandparents that when I was about sort of 16, because Upminster's in the district line, you could go up to town and go to a club. When I was about 16, again, if Nonna was ill, I had to stay the night just in case she needed anything. So I stayed the night that night and I sort of put her to bed about eight o'clock or took her a cup of tea and said, night, Nonna, see you in the morning. You know, she's night, night, you know. And then I thought, right, half an hour, out the door. <laughs> District line, met my mate Laura, up to Camden Palace, you know, Steve Strange and all that, you know, had a night out, got back at four in the morning, snuck into bed and bearing in mind at 16, you could do that and still yeah. be up for school. Could not do it now. And um, got up for school, took the cup of tea into Nonna, said, oh, how are you feeling? And she just grabbed my hand and said, what sort of granddaughter of mine has been out all night? And I was like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> and my biggest fear was not being caught, but she's going to tell my mum, who's going to go absolutely yeah. nuts at me. And to her credit, she never did. She never snitched to mum. She called my uncle, my mum's younger brother, who then called up. And again, this is a time of no mobile phones. Yeah. So he called the house and I go, oh, hi, Rent. And he goes, is mum near you? I said, no. And I said, oh, my God. He goes, yeah, I know. She's not going to tell mum. But next yeah. time you want to go out, I live in London. You just call me. I'll pick you up. You can stay the night. And I just think, you know, you, certain things you do with your parents, certain things your grandparents, you know, and that's that was great, actually. But, but it's funny, is it? Because, you know, I mean, like my kids are 18 and 23 now, so they're, you know, they're kind of grown up and independent. But they missed out on that sneaking yeah. out. yeah. Because you kind of go, well, I know where you are because I can track you on your phone. Yeah, and yeah. I have a very different relationship with them. But I think that, you know, we're, we're a, we're a similar-ish kind of age. Yeah. And that whole thing about that rite of passage is so, yeah. so different now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And also, I don't, know, I don't know whether one can say it was safe or less safe. I think there was danger in everyone growing up and stuff. But it was certainly a different era. And I certainly think we, in some ways, had more freedom. Because yeah. like you say, we. I remember my brother saying, you know, really, my first gig was simple minds and I really wanted to go and my mum was like no you're not and my brother you know to his def you know said come on mum she's sensible she's not stupid 
I'll go with her. Let's let, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, your parents had to trust you, you know? Yeah. And I suppose they instill those, you know, values and what you should do and what you shouldn't do when you go out. I th- and I think food as well, you know, which, which is obviously, you know, both of our lives, yeah. but you know, my mum cooked every day. Yeah. So, and we ate as a family, you know, we, we had to wait until my dad came in from yeah. work. So, you know, it was kind of young kids and like, you know, all your mates would be having their tea at five o'clock. My dad didn't get in from work till six, half six. But mum would cook every day. Yeah. Going out for dinner, no one went out for dinner when we were growing up. No, exactly. We cooked and that was when we sat together as a family yeah. all the time. And we never had the TV on. Yeah, we same. sat down, we had a meal as a family. And actually, my mum's big deal was not even that we were going out. It's just you're going to be home for dinner or you're having your dinner before you go out. You know, we had to have that family time where we sat, we talked. And even now, still now, I see my nephews and I see how we all grow up. We don't do TV. Yeah, It's just something that's not part of what we do. And and I think that's brilliant, actually. And I also remember, I don't know, bizarrely, that the one time I did have a TV dinner at my grandmother, Nonna's, was when Ronald Reagan became president. <laughs> and I mean, that's a long time ago. But it was like such an unusual thing. As she, and I'd re- you know, because this was suddenly a Hollywood star becoming, look, yeah. look, look what we've got now, or did have rather. <laughs> and we went and had it on like, trays. And it was like, God, that's so unusual that she would yeah. allow that. But, you know, so it sticks in your memory, you know. So what did you remember uh, from growing up then? What was your favourite meal that was cooked? Oh, Probably, I think, something like, um, I used to like, it sounds, this thing called, what they call, what we now call chicken milanese, they, uh, in Italy it's called cutoletta. Uh-huh. And cutoletta is basically either a really fattened out piece of beef or chicken or, or veal, and then you breadcrumb it and you fry it in butter. Oops, um, someone's making noise. We, we should actually point out the fact that Angela's job, Betty, is uh, <laughs> is wandering around and uh, is now just uh, wrapping herself <laughs> In, in the curtains that are in the studio. So we'll ignore Betty. It's because we started talking about meat. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and they basically, like a Milanese, so it's like a schnitzel, yeah. I suppose, that everyone would know it as. And she always made that, you know, at least once a week. And I remember that just being so delicious, so tasty. I remember thinking at Lent one year I'd give up meat to be good. And I think I'd lasted two days. Yeah. So I went to Nonna's and she made this and I ate it. I thought, oh, that's that's me gone out the window with that. Was there ever a horrible one? Was it if you, were you coming in for tea, there's one where you go, oh, I hate it when it's... When um, it's to be honest, we were pretty lucky. My mum was a great cook and still is. She'd cook things. She'd be more classical. She'd cook things like... Quite, she did a Cordon Bleu school, so she, uh, course, so she did a lot more traditional British stuff. Yeah. So she'd make things like, you know, rissoles or she'd make stews, stuff like that, more so and shepherd's pies and stuff. Whereas my grandmother would make a lasagna or she'd make cannelloni, she'd make the pasta. So we were, we had the best of both worlds. And the only thing I ever had that was really bad was I used to bite my nails, and I, unfortunately I still do. And my dad one time put my thumb in mustard to try and stop me biting them. <laughs> Never really uh, stopped me doing it. And that, but other than that, I have to say I was very lucky as a kid. I grew up with great food. Hearts was the only one I hated because I was the same. You oh. Know. oh, used to hate it. I'd come home and I could smell it. God Almighty, that was very big deal having that sort of yeah. thing as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, it was that whole thing. You know, mum would be there, like you know, it's full of iron. It's really yeah, good yeah, for of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but yeah, that was that was the one that I yeah. didn't like. You know, yeah. I had the same. Like you know, my my dad's mum was uh, was Italian. Yeah, and then my mum's mum was was a great baker. So I think yeah. I was always lucky that I I grew up yeah, with food. And, and I do yeah. sort of think you know, almost everybody we've spoken to on the podcast, their background as a child has been very positive yeah, with yeah, food. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I sort of find when I employ chefs now, 
those of them who almost have a have a family food background have a different passion yeah, for yeah, the ones yeah. who almost want to be a chef for career yeah, purposes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all about the taste. And it's inherent, I think. Yeah. And I think there's a real sort of, and I think you you definitely, I know you have the same appreciation me about waste. Yeah. I bet nothing was thrown out by your grandmother. Nothing, nothing was thrown mm-hmm. out by your mother. It's just, you don't waste food. No. You know, it, it was too precious, you yeah. know. I still feel that now, don't oh, you? Oh, I, I, I really get angry with myself yeah. if I get home and oh, you know, why is that sitting? And it yeah. tends to be, I'm sure you're the same, that you think you're going to be home yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you're not because of what we both do for a living. Yeah, yeah, and then you yeah. see something you have to throw in the bin. It drives me mad. I know. And it and it's so it's so wrong, you know, and we are, I mean, we could get onto that for a whole yeah. other podcast, but another time maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so, that, so that's growing up. But then before you went into food, you studied history at yeah. uni. Yeah. So basically, we went, like I said, we're good old uh, girls, Catholics, convent school. So everyone um, went off to uni. My brother had gone off to Exeter. He'd been away for a year. Um, and then I, and then basically my friends were deciding to go off. And I thought, you know what? I want to go into this cooking thing, but I'd quite like Did to. you? Did you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I always wanted to. So just to step back a bit, on the Italian side, my grandparents had fish and chip shops, bizarrely. Right. So They'd gone to Wales um, when they'd emigrated over from Italy. The three brothers had set up fish and chip shops and then all came to East London. So one was in Beckentry, one Barking and one in Dagenham. And so I like the idea of these shops that you shut when you wanted. You ran it. You had yeah. all the money. You know, in my little head, it was like, oh, that seems like a fun business. Let's do that and let's get into cooking. And I was quite good at it, you know, but I wasn't ever sure about how to do it because also then it wasn't really a career. No. You know, it wasn't seen as something that you did. So my mum had always said, go to Cordon Bleu or she goes, you should go to France and really study it. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to do a degree first. And if it all fails after I've tried it, let's see. And then so that's what I went. I went out. I did a year au pairing in Italy, came back, went to Cambridge Poly. I've been oh, bitten yeah. by your dog hey, right now. Wait, <laughs> Betty Boo, come here. Wait, come here, you. And um, <laughs> and then uh, ow, she's just becoming a little minx. I'm going to sit here. Sorry about this setting the podcast. Um, I wish you could see what's happening. <laughs> I know she's just marred one of the greatest chefs in the country. Brilliant, thank you, Betty. This will go down as a legend. Um, so yeah, sorry. So I went to Italy for a year to yeah. just, uh, au pair and learn Italian properly, and then came back and went to Cambridge Poly to do history. Yeah, and then sort of fell into it after studying. Did there. you did you work when you were because my my start my career started when I was at Leicester Poly yeah. doing fashion and textiles, and I worked in bars and restaurants. Yeah, to kind of like you know to to pay my way really. Yeah, so that was my start of the love affair with the industry. I I worked in bars. I worked yeah. in a student union bar, and then I worked in the local pub um, afterwards. And yeah, no, I, I loved it. But also, well, because we, you know, in those days you got your grant paid, but yeah. you spent it within two weeks of starting. Of yeah. And then you needed money. So, you know, mum didn't have any to sort of, so to speak. So if we wanted to have money, we always had to work. Same. You know, yeah. And that's, you know, I grew up having Saturday jobs and yeah. doing paper rounds and all the rest of it. So in that respect, it was great. You know, you learned the sort of value of cash. But um, it did make me think, yeah, I, I liked it and I loved it. And then sort of went into this lovely pub called the free press in cambridge which Uh is still around which cooked really great food worked for a place called the blue boar as well which were you in the kitchen then i was in the the kitchen yeah but you know again no training but just was quite good common sense new flavors 
And then I really took it seriously when I started working for a guy called Hans Schweitzer, who at the time owned Midsummer House, which right. is now owned yeah. by Daniel Clifford, and then worked with him for a couple of years. And it was Hans that suggested to me, why don't you go off to Barbados? I've got a restaurant out there. You can work in this hotel for a while. See how, how old that. are you now then? I'm probably about 23, I reckon, okay. 23. Yeah, because I suppose then did six months in Barbados, which was great, loved it. But it's one of those, you either stay there and you're there for the rest of your life, which in hindsight, you think, why the hell wouldn't I stay there? But I didn't. <laughs> but I thought I wanted to come back to London. And and then I started working for Gordon, I suppose. So, so when you when you were in Barbados, then, so, you, so you'd had the, the, the Midsome House, then you went to Barbados. Yeah. So were you then that progression in terms of the type of cooking that you wanted to do? Um, were you feeling that you were moving towards a fine dining end of things? No, I don't think until I got into um, working with Gordon that I felt that. I wasn't, you know, Hans was great um, chef, um, still is. He works, runs one of the college kitchens now. But I always, uh, it was never that sort of Michelin driven, I suppose, yeah. for want of a better word for fine dining. And it wasn't until I sort of worked for Gordon that you really were driven into about that first meal's as good as the last meal. That person who has that soup at the beginning of the the service has got to have the same standard at the end of it. Not that we didn't have that in anywhere no. else, but it was just that you know really like push push drive drive drive, and that's what we did. So, so did you did you hunt out working for Gordon because ninety four is at the start of that tremendous trajectory that he yeah. had that he became. The person to work yeah. with, you know, we've we've had Marcus Warren on the podcast, and of course, you know, he's you know one of your old yeah, leaders. yeah, yeah. So you know that whole thing you said, like he wanted to work for Gordon, he wants to be part of that family. Well, I went to do loads of different. So I uh, I applied to Sally Clark, I applied to Carluccio's, I applied to Gordon, and I got loads of interviews. But it was Gordon's kitchen that sort of enthralled me. Right, you know, he was there in the kitchen. The, you know, I arrived at my trial at eight o'clock in the morning. He was there. He was there till when I left that night. That that same sort of week, he'd been in the paper about the hot new guy in town. Sort of, yeah. you know, this was the chef that everyone wanted to eat at. This was the restaurant, and so I thought, you know, I want to go and work with him. I mean, I was totally deluded about what I was signing up to. You know, Midsummer House was this lovely. We had a couple of hours break in the afternoon. The last check was a oh, <laughs> Betty. Sorry, Bet- Betty's now jumping up trying to bite my pen. I'm glad it was only my pen that I was holding between. Kick my her over pen. here, we don't kick her. Sorry. Um, so also, yeah. can I just mention when Ange came in, she said, "I said, who's this?" She said, "This is Betty. Betty's really well behaved. She, <laughs> she'll be really quiet. You won't even know she's here." I mean, she's just turning into a little minx, right? You are going to sit there and eat that. And I blame the parents. I do as well. Um, so. Yeah, so basically Midsummer House was this really lovely, you know, easy, easy, sort of nice restaurant that in Cambridge you finished service at 9 30, 10 o'clock, you didn't start till nine o'clock. And then I went into London and we were in the kitchen at seven. Yeah. Last orders at eleven. We're home at one. And this is six days a week. And you're like, this is brutal. But you sort of signed on to it. And as you rightly said, I was working with Marcus, Mark Askew, Freddie Foster, you know, some really amazing Damien, the pastry chef, talented, talented chefs. It, it was like an invincible band then. Mm. It almost felt that, that your whole group were doing something that no one else in the catering world was doing. And it yeah. wasn't necessarily just about the food. There was almost that shield around you all that said, you know what? 
we're better than everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That that whole presence that you all had was yeah. like that. Well, I think Gordon was um, certainly the one ahead by then by a long shot, and no one could sort of catch him. You yeah. know, he was pushing on for his two stars. Then he was pushing for his three stars when he'd moved to Royal Hospital Road. Um, you know, he'd had some incredible people. By then, Sarge was working for him. Claire was working for him. You know, he had all these different people in his kitchen. Jason... You know, we always laughed. He used to always come to the aubergine at like quarter to 11, you know, for the last. And yeah. we'd be there till one o'clock serving him going, yeah, you absolute arse. You know, <laughs> you know, like you're our last customer. But Gordon just, you know, he had that, you know, he had that uniqueness. He had that bravado. He certainly had that arrogance, yeah. you know. And, but people loved him. People were drawn to it. And it was a, you know, it was a phenomenal restaurant. And the other key was there all the time. I've got to give that to yeah. him. You know, he worked the hours we did, you know. I mean, he always laughed. We'd always do this thing that he'd come in on a Monday morning and come up and, you know, he'd trot over to me and Damien. We always said that. We said, if we come in and he puts his jacket on, we're in for a rough ride. That means he's in a funny mood. If he trots over to me and Damien in the pastry, he's like, hi, how are you? Oh, everything all right? Uh, yeah. Good weekend? <laughs> then we thought, okay. He's, he's like, and he'd come over, good weekend? And I'd look at my weekend, Sunday. That was our weekend. <laughs> what are you talking about? But he quite liked the fact that I was always the one who was a bit gobby. You know, and I remember telling him once I'd gone out for dinner some night. And it was when Steve, um, enough, this is terrible. Steve runs the Hardwick in um, Wales. Steve Terry. Steve Terry, Steve yeah. Terry. I saw him last right. week. Yeah, 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 exactly. Running the Atlantic Bar. I just opened it. And we'd all gone for a trial, not a trial, we'd gone for a soft opening. And Steve was there. And I remember a friend of mine saying, oh, you work at that aubergine. We hear it's like Vietnam. And I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I proceed to tell Gordon. And I just remember Marcus looking at me going, shut up. <laughs> I mean, what are you, are you insane, woman? <laughs> You know, you're you're insulting, but Gordon was just laughing at me. He goes, "I love you, Angie. You just don't." I said, "No, but it's brilliant. Everyone thinks like Vietnam." It's funny. <laughs> but but it's funny though because I remember seeing you on telly on one of the, one of the shows that Gordon did. Oh, what was it called? Hell's uh, Kitchen or Hell's Kitchen, yeah. right? And I remember seeing and the, and the rest of the rest of Gordon's tea with with the contestants. They were sort of almost in the background, and I didn't know you at all then. And I remember you just being. Far more mocking and self depreciating, yeah, than the rest. Yeah, and what you've just said then kind of kind of highlights that that you yeah. you just had a different demeanor than the rest of that team. Well, so it seemed to me. Well, I suppose the one thing, like um, so Laura, I was at work the other day. I was at Murano the other day, and I I was just walking into the kitchen, and we've got a chef's table. You can look through to the kitchen, and I walked in, and these customers were talking to Laura, and they saw me come in, and they said to Laura, oh, "She's not like that. I would never have thought she's like that." You know, she's very different than you'd think, you know. And Laura sort of in her head, which was telling me after, she felt like saying, if you actually knew her, you'd know she absolutely is no different from herself on TV than she is yeah. in the restaurant. And I think we've known each other long enough. I, I think you are who you are. I don't know yeah. Simon Rimmer on TV and Simon Rimmer. You're Simon. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And I think I'm the same. And, and I've always been like that because I'm not an actor or an actress. And it's just you've got to be yourself. And then you're honest, I yeah. think. And that's what I think both of us are in that Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think this, I think one of, the, one of the, this question I really hate because I'm asking it, but as a female in a kitchen at Gordon's then, was there a difference? Did you, I mean, that thing that, you know, it's a horrible thing to say, but, you know, that you have to work harder to kind of yeah. to show it. And like, you know, it's hard getting females into, into our profession anyway. Yeah. Were you aware of that, do you think? I don't think so much at the time. I think I was aware that Gordon did treat me differently, not in a way that he thought, oh, God, she's got to be work twice as hard. He yeah. felt that, oh, God, she's a woman. 
she can't do certain things. If anything, right. reverse sexism in some respect. You know, he'd try and send me home early and say, Angela, you go off now, you know. Or he'd go, no, you don't, Angela, don't clean the, you know, we had those solid yeah, yeah, yeah. markers, yeah, markers. Yeah. And he'd go, come on, you've got to change that. And I'd be like, Ugh. And then um, <laughs> Gordon would not, you know, and I love the fact he never said that, but I didn't like him sending me home early and I rebelled yeah. against that. And I said to him, no, Gordon, come on, we're a team, you know, and I want to be part of the team. I don't want to be looked on any differently. And Marcus was like, you know, you're going to get me in trouble if I don't send you home. And I said, no. So I followed Gordon up in the restaurant one night, yeah, literally. And I was like tapping him. He said, what the heck, you know, who are you? And I said, no, stop sending me home early. It's not on. Yeah. And he didn't after that. Fair play to him. And I regret that ever since. I would have loved to have gone home. <laughs> Worst mistake. The next phase I want to do, I want to kind of go on to you leaving Gordon. But before yeah. that, um, I want to do our recipe challenge. Oh, cry. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk barbecues. This section we call our BBQ&A. See what yeah. we've done there. It's pretty yes, very clever, good. that is. <laughs> Uh, we ask our chefs the same five questions about outdoor cooking uh, to get them in the mood for our recipe challenge which yeah. comes after. Okay. So, the, so the first one is uh, your favourite memory of barbecue, whether it's from your childhood, yourself. It could even be a terrible memory for barbecue. Um, it's not so much barbecuing as outdoor eating, but there were barbecues going on. But the thing they used to do is the big Italian community, and they probably still do them now, is these things called scampignatas and uh-huh. like, all the Italians from Wales and North London would sort of meet in this field on the M4 wow. and have these sort of outdoor events where they'd do clay pigeon, you know, have little pop-up shops. And my aunt used to make this thing called a bomba di riso. And basically, imagine a massive bowl layered with risotto rice that's sort of stuck together and inside it is this lovely pigeon wild meat ragu and you turn oh. it out, slice it. So I always remember Rena makes the best bomba di riso. Like I say, it's not a barbecue thing as such, but it's an outdoor eating memory. And yeah. That was what I always think about as a kid when we used to go to these scampignatas. I think it's about outdoor eating full stop is yeah. is different. It's yeah, so, totally. so different. I, don't, yeah. I think now, you know, you look at it and wherever you go, there's outdoor spaces for people to eat. Yeah. Whereas... I remember as a kid, anything that was sort of picnic-y in inverted yeah. commas, saying, wow, this is so exciting. I, love, I still love that. I, I do. love outdoor eating yeah. more than anything. I think any time I can sit outside, I'd rather sit outside. Yeah. And when you're barbecuing, next question is, do you have a favourite season, whether it be ingredient-based or just the fact that... I think one of my favourite combinations is, uh, is, is, the, is rosemary. I know that sounds ridiculous, uh-huh. but I love rosemary. I think it goes with so many things. Like it goes, obviously, with meats, with lambs, with uh, um, certainly on beef, pork, whatever. Love it with um, uh, fishes as well. I think yeah. with monkfish, it's a great thing if you skewer stuff. Yeah. You know, take off, you know, skewer sort of monkfish tails or lamb neck or something. So I love it as a great season. So herbs, I think, are fantastic for me. I'm not a big... Certainly rubs. I suppose that's for me. My one thing I do do, which is probably shouldn't tell, is bad secret. I basically think, cry, I'm going to use up all those little bits of jars of mustard and stuff. And I basically put it all in a bowl, mix it together and use that as a marinade. Yeah. Always works out all right. But I I like that. And I think, you know, I think that it it is a thing. And even if sometimes it's a bit weird and you think, wow, maybe putting that oregano and that. that." With those prunes. (laughs) (laughs) has <laughs> maybe not been the greatest flavour ever, but you know what? I don't care. I know. I've got rid of jars in my fridge. I'm so happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I can buy new ones now. Yeah. I, all right. I'll, I'll have that one for you. And 
if you if you do barbecue, are you ambitious? What's the most ambitious thing you've ever done? Oh God, no. I mean, well, we do do things like I, we've got this thing called a mango, Mongolian barbecue, which is like this clay pot. Yeah. And I think it's more traditionally used for slow cooking, literally putting pots and stuff. But it has a grill, and the thing we've done there is like whole turbots. You know. Oh things wow. Like I've done that because I think you've probably been there, San Sebastian, and when you go up oh, to Guitara, my favourite, and you go eat. out of San Sebastian, you go up to Guitara and um, Guitaria, and you've got all those fish restaurants and all those outside grills, and you know that's what I love, that sort of thing. I just think it's brilliant, and you know we we're the people who have bought those things that you put the fish in, you know, like little yeah 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 uh, whatever they're called. I don't know. I suppose they like cleavers. They hold the fish together, and we try putting them a bit small for a big turp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I work for a sea brew. Um, so that's what we do. Sa- like San Sebastian is one of my mm. favourite places in the yeah, world to go. It is. Meet. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I I just think if no matter what you like food wise, there is nowhere better to go. Yeah. It's almost, you know, we're coming back to what we're talking about with our childhood mm. that if you like food, yeah. go to San Sebastian. Yeah. Just walking around, having yeah. a coffee, having a pastry, going to the market, yeah. sitting down for breakfast somewhere. Everything is yeah. just so food based. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. It's great. Yeah. It? And also good booze as well there. <laughs> Any disasters on the barbecue? Not so much a disaster as such, more uh, ungratefulness from people. Oh. I say. <laughs> this is probably so. Great friend of mine, Pat, who unfortunately is no longer with us, moved near me uh, into our neighbourhood. And I said to her and her husband, Ben, I said, you know what? I'll throw you a little welcome party with all the neighbours. So we, we're very good, Neil and I, my husband, at putting things together last minute and making look effortless, you know. And Pat comes round about one o'clock, parties at three, and she sees that nothing's happening. She sort of goes, I mean, are these two going to be ready? And, you know, <laughs> and we're like, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. Anyway, so I do run around, you know, that adrenaline energy, get everything ready, barbecuing chicken, loads of different stuff grilled courgettes, bean salads, you know, done all this food. Neil's done one dish. He's done these aubergines yeah. where he's lightly grilled them, mixed <laughs> them with some yogurt, some mint, bit of dressing, maybe a bit of molasses or honey. Anyway, everyone's having a great time and people keep coming up and going, oh, food's lovely. Food. Those aubergines are delicious. <laughs> you know, another one. What did you do to those aubergines? <laughs> By the time the third, I was like, I didn't do the aubergines, all right? <laughs> I didn't make the aubergines. I made everything else for 30, 40 people. Did not do the aubergines, you know. Ben comes up, he goes, oh, Angela, I really love those courgettes. I'm like, all right, Ben. You know, expletives <laughs> followed. We're on radio and it's early in the morning. But I was like, yeah, so an ungratefulness. It wasn't a disaster, but I was slightly put out. No, I kind of like that. <laughs> but I, I would imagine that Neil also probably brings it up on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, as does Ben. Those <laughs> yeah, aubergines again, no. <laughs> and finally, so if people are going to barbecue, have you got a top tip? When we had Adam Richman on, yeah. and I've never heard of this one. I wasn't sure whether it, whether it works. So he said that when you um, when you make burgers for the barbecue, if you put a little dent in the top of them with a spoon, yeah. it stops them puffing up. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't either. I'm glad you did. No. Because I was thinking at the time thinking, I should really know this. So I thought, yeah. now I've got a proper chef in with me. I no. thought, I'll check. I didn't know that either. I didn't know that at all. No, I'm going to try it. I suppose my top tip would be, I suppose, less is more. You yeah. know, because I think one thing with a barbecue, everyone wants to, and it, we all want that. We want vastness, we want generosity. But I think sometimes you can overreach and then undersell. So then things are undercooked or not quite cooked enough. And then, and I think actually, don't be afraid to sort of finish. I know it's a slight cheat, but don't worry about it if you need to finish something in an oven. <gasps> I I know that is that really here heresy? If I just said that. 
Oh my wow. god. Simon's Simon's wow. but, but, uh, that just, last Then my producer's just like stop the recording now. <laughs> this has been grilling with Simon Rimmer and our former friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I mean, you know what? I'm going to make up for that. Come on, uh, no. Wow, right, you've put pressure on yourself now. All the big wigs at Weber and they're going like, never ask her again. <laughs> you've ever thought about giving her one of those free barbecues? No. She can put it in her baby belly. I don't mean the whole thing. I mean, you're the thing that you're like up against time. Anyway, sorry, Weber. I, right. have, I have a Weber. I have one. The, the, I have another one. The, <laughs> The pressure is on now then, Hartner, after that. Right. Um, it's time for a recipe challenge. So, yeah. uh, Andy Harriet was crowned champion in oh, season right. one. Yeah. Um, so, season two, you're starting the series off. So, you know, oh, you, you're you're setting the bar, oh, whether it's high or low. Rules are simple. Uh, we'll give you 45 seconds yeah. to sell me a simple dish that you'd make while entertaining the family and friends this summer. Uh, it has to be cooked outdoors on the barbecue. So, mm. you can have any cut of meat, fish or veg. Mm. Um, you've got to prepare a marinade or rub or some kind of seasoning for mm. it. And you also need a cold side dish, okay? Oh, my uh, God. And you only have 45 seconds um, to sell it to me. So are you ready? Yep. Okay. So tell me the title of the dish and then go. So it's monkfish, uh, roasted monkfish tail with harissa dressing. So basically a lovely Spanish harissa paste with, you know, those macon almonds that we ground down with roasted blistered red peppers, loads of olive oil in there, loads of sherry vinegar, Tons and tons of garlic, all blitz, 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 blitz together. Whack a load of basil in there, load of even coriander, if you like that sort nice. of thing. Not for me. See, I've insulted coriander lovers now. 25 seconds gone. Oh, my God. And then basically rub it all over the monkfish tail, leave it in the fridge overnight, heat your barbecue the next day, and then literally roast in barbecue. Just roast that monkfish tail. It's meaty monkfish. You can take those big spices and then put finish it with loads of fresh basil and loads of olive oil. Beautiful. 40 seconds. Oh, that, was very that, that actually sounds really, really <laughs> delicious. Oh, I've, God, I've got to say. I think that, I'm waiting that, for the securities at the door after my other comment. That, that, that does sound amazing. So do, do you barbecue? I do. I honestly do. We do, we, you know, we do have a barbecue in the garden. As I said, I love, we're very fortunate. We live where we have a garden in London, which not, yeah. you know, and it's not massive, but it's one of the reasons I love the house is we come out and we can sit there at night. And for me, sit, even if we don't even necessarily use a barbecue, we'll sit outside and eat. Yeah. It's just that outdoor thing. But actually, I do, you know, I love having a fire. I love having that sort of thing. And and I'd actually like to be better at it because my problem with barbecues is I'm impatient. You know, so <laughs> I basically like them. And then I'm like, well, is this ready? And, of course, you have to wait for the flames to stop. And, of course, I don't. I'm like, oh, yeah. no, put it on. And it's, you know, and every time I do it, I'm like, you know, whereas Neil's much more patient, you know, he's like, come on, wait for it, you know, let the coals go to as they should be, and then we can do it. And of course, that's the smart thing to do. It's just, you know, whereas I rush it, which, you know, hence why my silly comment finished in the oven. It's not that you should. <laughs> yeah, I always, we found out why now. You just like, rubbish at barbecue. I <laughs> So I always have to put my raw food back in the oven. But no, but, and that's it. And I love that, you know, because. It is amazing when you do get people who do it wrong like me and it's that you're basically having burnt Horrible. as opposed to Horrible. beautiful charcoal. And that's why when you go to Spain, as we said, and you see all those red embers and well, actually, it's the white embers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You get, and that's yeah. where you think, God, that's just beautiful. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of those amazing kind of grills when they can have got yeah. the little kind of tools to wind it up oh, and drop God, it yeah, down. Yeah, and yeah, it's just totally. it's a work of art. Yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. just beautiful. No, exactly. That's it. And I think. I think now more than ever, it's become, it's a real skill. Yeah. I think it always was that sort of, you know, thing in, I don't know, whenever that, you know, 
man, barbecue, meat, you know, and it's like, you know, but no one actually understood the proper things of, you know, moisture, heat and, you know, and how it should work correctly. And I, and I think you're right. I think that, you know, I think it has changed from that being that whole kind of domain of being a little bit kind of macho and kind of a little bit of a, yeah, a, yeah. a, a peeing up the wall contest. Yeah, yeah, now yeah. I say, you know what, this is actually a fantastic method of cooking mm, yeah. and that versatility. I mean, like, you know, all the low and slow stuff for me is is the mm. way to use your barbecue. Yeah, you yeah. Know, treat totally. it like an oven. Yeah. And just having that beautiful kind of smoky flavour mm. and letting stuff cook for hours yeah. on end. Yeah. It's just incredible. I'm quite obsessed with I keep smoking cheese on my barbecue. Oh, I never thought to do that. Do you it's put it literally on the amazing. barbecue? Amazing. Well, I literally just put I feta, halloumi, cheddar, oh, you name it. Yeah. I just put it on a foil tray yeah. into the barbecue, yeah. away from the heat, and just let it smoke. I tend to oh, do it when wow. I finish cooking on the barbecue. Just while the I just put it in there. Going. Yeah. yeah and it's... Ah. Just oh, incredible. Yeah. Smoke feta, I reckon I've probably eaten my body weight in it in the last <laughs> week. <laughs> I'm going to try that. I've never tried uh, that. It's and incredible. And then would you like dressing? Because I do like 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 roasted halloumi with stuff yeah. on it. Would, is, would you then put a dressing on it or you'd eat it as it, it is? To be honest, I like it as it is. But yeah, then when you've got that background of flavour, so rather yeah. than just having like, and don't get me wrong, I love feta anyway, that sort yeah. of saltiness, it just brings that sort of depth of it down and almost lead you into different yeah, worlds yeah, of yeah, then yeah, dressings yeah, sure. rather than you need to go sort of lemony and that yeah, end of yeah, it yeah, you nice. can almost go like harissery yeah, and sort of deeper oh, flavors yeah, and all those cheeses you mentioned can take that sort yeah, of yeah that's punch, it you know? yeah all, fantastic all oh, i'm trying that thanks for that right I, I expect uh just mentioned it when you get an interview for one of those kind of big posh magazines <laughs> that you're in that never asked me they don't, they don't tend to ask that in bella so <laughs> So we got to the point where you're working for Gordon. Yeah. Why did you leave? What made you decide it was time to go? Um, I think by then Marcus had sort of gone on his own. Jason had. And not because it was sort of everyone jumping ship, so to speak. But I think we'd all come to a time where we said, you know what? We've done it. Let's let's start. We can do it for ourselves now. You know, we've grown up enough. And do you think so. Gordon w- would have wanted that to happen? I think in his heart of hearts, he probably yeah. expected it. He might not have liked it at the time. I know there was a few acrimonious ones with certain people, but um, yeah. with me... We've had one of them on. Yeah, we've had one of them on, I'm sure. <laughs> um, with me, it was just like, you know, it was fine. You know, I've moved on. I still see Gordon. I still, you know, speak to him. We did the deal. I got Murano. And and that's it. And you move on. And I think that's how it should be. And, you know, and I know like Claire, you know, Gordon's still an investor, but yeah, you know, she runs it. It's her restaurant. So I think it sort of annoys me sometimes when people look back at Gordon and think he hasn't done stuff for this industry or I think he's left a huge legacy. I do. He's not dead, obviously. But the point is, you know, I remember judging in a competition once and everyone sort of dismissed Gordon. I said, you lot are forgetting. I said, you know, there's two chefs in London that have, have left the biggest le- legacy. And to this day, I still think it's still these two. One's Gordon and one's Fergus Henderson. Yeah. Because if you read so many reviews now, especially of the young cooks coming through, from Jason Lowe, from Lee Tin, and, you know, excellent John, excellent yeah. John, excellent John. You read where, you look at now people who are the restaurateurs, and I'm not bigging us up or being arrogant. It's me. It's the Marcuses. It's the Jasons. Yeah. It's, a, you know, all that. And we're all the Gordon legacy. You know, so... You know, you're spreading your wings. And I don't think any other chefs in London have left that at the moment. Maybe in years to come, there will be someone else. But certainly, you know, I mean, 
a bit obviously the ruse but i'm talking a different generation yeah. now but you know of our generation i think those guys have influenced london more than anyone yeah i agree and I, you know and, and also you've all moved on and then taken it in a different direction yeah. with that core there yeah so you know you're never going to lose that legacy of course of what you had with gordon but almost that experience and, yeah. and that that skill set yeah. that you learned has been so influential. Yeah, and it just carries on and you see that. You know, when I see certain young cooks, you know, come if I know where what school they've come from, I look at how they lay the fish down, I think, oh my God, they've had someone train them as Gordon did. Yeah. You know, and I think, well, is that that's a rue legacy or whatever it is, you know, and I look now even when I go in and I see a guy put the fish in, I'm like, okay, this is how we're going to present it on the plate. This is how you lay it flat in the tray so it follows the line of the fish. You know, and it's all yeah. those little details. But it's, you know, it's a huge influence, I think. Yeah, hugely. So when you first opened Murano, how how scary was it? Or were you really ready to do it? Um, So for the first year I was with Gordon, we did it. And then when I took over, I suppose I'd, I was probably properly ready by then. Because a few years back, people had said to me, oh, go on, why don't you do your own thing? And, you know, you just need a few sort of angel investors and stuff. And then I remember lying in bed thinking, oh, my God, not a chance, not a chance. Do I want to be the one responsible for this, that and the other? And then I think when the time to do it on my own, I had the right investors that had said they'd back me, that I felt there was people I could rely on. And I had the experience, you know, I was running Murano as if it was my own. And it just felt like I knew what, you know, the price of this glass was. I knew what the price of paper was. I knew what the price of bass was. And I knew how to make money. And, you know, I know that feels like sometimes a dirty word when we say in this in this business, because it's all about the art and what we do and the passion. But I don't want to work 18 hours a day to have nothing in the bank at the end of it. You know, and I think you've got to know how to make money and deliver a great restaurant. And I think if you get all your, as Robin Hudson always says, he says, get your product right, get what you're giving to your customers right, get your team right you make your money, everything will follow. But if you don't get those details right, it won't. And, you know, and he's absolutely right. And and I've learned and I've got the experience to do that now, I think. It's funny because almost you sort of think, say before your generation, then you can almost tick off names who had great reputations as chefs, but became terrible businessmen. Yeah. And yet it feels that your generation, my generation, we were different. Yeah. That it wasn't about sort of saying, you know, it's all about my craft. It's saying, yeah. this is my job. Yeah, yeah, It's not yeah. a hobby. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I want to make a living from yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I mean, it was it's Gordon that's probably instilled it in me, in my head, that he always says, I don't want to be a chef in my 75 cooking in a restaurant. Yeah. And all right, he's, his career's gone differently, but I also don't want to be, you know, I'm in my early 50s. I, You know, I'll cook for another few years, but I don't want to be here forever. No. I want to pass it on to the next generation. I want someone to take over. And I think that's right to, you know, it's a great career, but it, you need to be, I know when I do a, a few shifts, I'm like, oh God, I'm exhausted now. You know, it, it is a young man's game. It it's is. physically enduring. And then mentally these days, there's so many other things, obviously coming out of COVID as it's other pressures. But, you know, I think you've got to be, you know, really on your game and capable and want to do it. So I, I agree. I think you've got to, do, whatever you do, you've got to make sure it's the right business for you to come out with something at the end of it. Could you ever imagine stopping it? You ever imagine that you, you might retire as a word I don't think any of us ever want to use, but can you imagine that you, you might not be actively involved with, yes. with the businesses? Yeah. Honestly, I, I'm not ashamed to say that. I, I, yeah. You know, I, I think in the next, you know, definitely by the time I'm 60, for sure, if not earlier. And, I, I, you know, I've worked, we talked, I've been working since I was 24, long hours. Yeah. I've loved it. I've had 
wonderful, wonderful experiences. I've made some of the best friends in my life through it. And I'm I'm still having great times on it. I love it. It's a great business you've got to love. But I don't want to do it forever. I also want to go out and see the Galapagos Islands. I want to, you know, take three months off and get a camper van. And you know what I mean? So I don't I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to say that. I think you need a game plan at the end of it. Yeah. And I agree. You know, I, I know that I made the decision when I was 42. Mm. So that's 16 years ago that I felt I need to stop being in the kitchen. Yeah. Six days a week. Yeah. Because I, I, I remember the night particularly, it was a Friday night and we were in greens and I'd be doing other stuff during the day. Mm. And then it came in, did service and it was brutal. One of those mm. ones where you just yeah. feel like you're on the brink of it going wrong yeah, all night. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, just yeah, keeping ahead yeah. of it. And at the end of it, sitting down, having a beer with the team and they go, oh, chef, great night that. I remember sitting thinking, I didn't enjoy it. No, yeah. You know, I, I enjoyed bits of it, mm. but I haven't got that buzz that they had. I think I yeah. need to kind of change yeah. the way that I work. And now that has changed. And now when I do work in the kitchen, I really love it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there is that danger, isn't there? If you, if you stand there because you have to or you feel guilty about not standing there, yeah. I think you undoubtedly will become stale because yeah. it's, it's brutal. Yeah. No, it's got to be. And, you know, I think I'm, I've am i recognised that obviously COVID, everyone's just come back together, everyone's head down. I know everyone is. I know Jason is, Marcus, we're all at the cold face sort of doing it. But I've also said to myself and I've said to my partners, I said, come July, that's out. I said, yeah. we have to make sure we're staffed up. I said, I'm not doing this anymore because it's a waste of, it's not right for the, my time management. I'm not doing what I actually should be doing is getting into all the other restaurants because I'm stuck at the stove at one. And, you know, yeah. it's great and I love doing it, but it's got to be when I do it, not because I need to do it or yes. have to do it. You know, and that's a big difference, I think. Do you think things are uh, having to change? So, I mean, you know, we all talk about staff shortages, irrespective of, kind of what's happened with COVID. Yeah. The staff shortage crisis has been coming for a long time. Yeah. The skill set hasn't yeah, been there. Right, that yeah. we have a generation of people who, rightly so, who don't want to work 85, 90, 95 mm. hours a week. Mm. But I don't quite know how we overcome that issue without prices having to go through the roof. Because that, that the cost of staff is so yeah, high. Yeah, I think that is the key. I think prices have to go up. Prices have to go up. Landlord rents have to come down because I think they've also skyrocketed. Yeah. And I think if um, COVID teaches us anything, the high street's been outpriced. And I, th- I, I genuinely think the government should bring in some law that says, you know, because now you look around, you see there's lots of empty properties, which were restaurants or cafes, whatever. So I, I would, if I were in power, say, you know what, if you've got a a tenancy or a lease if you can't put someone in for three in three months we're taking it off you because mm-hmm. make it so it's affordable for people you know competitive rate not over inflated yeah. like it was i think salaries uh prices have to go up because i think if people actually saw a breakdown of what a restaurant costs exactly they would never in a million years go into it for no, one ever or believe it you know and i always remember tom saying to me a bill should be like a mechanics bill you know, labour, parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine. You know, and then you really saw how much everything costs. And listen, I think there's so many things that if you get it right, it absolutely storms it. And I think, you know, you and I probably have very successful businesses in our our series of restaurants that just you don't have to look at them. As long as they're full, they're fine. Yeah. Whereas there's others that if one week the margin goes this way, it's a loss and the other week, and that's that's where it's, it's hard. 
So um, I think that, you know, there's either side. And I think you're right. The skills shortages is a problem for everyone. And it, it, it's about us making it a great business for people to come into. We now have people on three days off. You know, they do between six and seven shifts a week. So yeah. they do two doubles max a week. And and that's what we have to do, you know. And, I, and actually, it's not a case of we have to. I want to. Yeah. I don't want people knackered and exhausted. I want them to have quality of life. I want people that are fresh. Yeah. But you have to manage it. Yeah. And it's, it's that change of mindset, isn't it? That rather than it being, well, it's a badge of honour to have done yeah. 100 hours a week yeah. and be absolutely exhausted to mm. say, you know what? I've worked really hard. I've loved what I've done and I'm ready and raring to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we've all been in that situation where <laughs> you're literally dragging yourself out of bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To just no, get exactly. there to do you're it. You're just walking on air because you're so exhausted. Yeah. yeah. But it feels that, you know, that changeover, it feels to me that the next sort of two to three years are going to be really tough for our industry. Mm, yeah. Because we have to change the, the mechanics of how people work. Yeah. And the, the knock on of that, Maybe we lose some custom because all of a sudden you can't go out and eat for a yeah. tenner. Yeah. You know? And it, it was who? Uh, who was that lady on Dragon's Den who owned Bombay Brasserie? Sarah, is it Sarah Gillingham? Anyway. Yeah. I remember chatting to her one day. We were out doing this podcast or an, an interview or something. We were chatting away. And I was saying to her, I always thought food was cheap and there was something wrong that this country had, you know, meals for one pound and that's why bad food. And she actually said, or I said, what I said was, you know, Good food isn't cheap, and that's what we're wrong. She was actually, I think you're wrong. That's why my argument was good food isn't cheap. It should be affordable for everyone. She goes, no, you're wrong. She goes, the problem is bad food is too cheap. She goes, that's really yeah. good. And she goes, yeah. twist it on its head. And she goes, actually, you should pay for quality. Yeah. Why shouldn't you pay a farmer the right amount of money? She goes, what it is is that everyone should be able to afford it. She goes, the other arguments about society. But there's a point to that. It's just, you know, something that, you know, there is something to be said for a hand-reared chicken costing what it costs. Yeah. Not because the farmer's greedy. That's what it costs, yeah. you know. And it and it's sort of changing that mindset to a degree as well. Yeah. I, I, again, coming back to our childhood yeah. where people would cook and we almost have sort of, you know, two if not three generations of yeah. people who don't cook. Yeah. because cheap not particularly great food yeah. is there so yeah, yeah, you know yeah. it's kind of like in the microwave and ding yeah. it or you you know takeaways are cheap yeah. and you sort of think that from a restaurant point of view from a very selfish restaurateur's point of view yeah. you look at it and go well our main competition isn't you or another yeah, restaurant yeah, yeah. our competition with the supermarkets yeah, 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 who are yeah, selling yeah. so on a cold tuesday night in february yeah yeah, if yeah. you can go and buy something from the supermarket for a tenner yeah that'll be pretty great to make them come out and spend 50 quid with you yeah yeah sure and also it's you know and if you are on a budget which a lot of people are you know of course you're going to buy a ready meal that yeah. costs you less and you can feed your family you're not going to spend silly money on a chicken no you can't afford it no, yeah. or spend four hours in the yeah, kitchen doing exactly. it. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so, what's next then? So, uh, is it is it is it wind down now? We've talked about the fact that you know you and I are both getting to an age <laughs> when it's kind of like looking at care homes and bath chairs, <laughs> <laughs> rather, rather than rather than anything else. You know, are, are, will you do more restaurants, or, or are you kind of do you think you're done with where um, you sit? I'd certainly do more cafes. I'd like yeah. to do more cafes. They've been great. We'd probably do two or three more in London, and then. Hopefully look to sell those on. Um, wouldn't do another Murano. Murano works. Would love to push and for two stars. You know, we've, it's always a great ambition to have. You know, it's not driving the whole thing about that. But yeah. I think it's great for the team to always be striving and pushing. Um, love working with Robin at Limewood. You know, do a lot of stuff with him. So, I mean, my time, I'm 
okay. If I'll never say never, you know, yeah. if a great opportunity came up and I thought, you know what, that really tickles me. And and to me, it's never about the dollar signs or the pounds. It's always about who I'm working with. Yeah. You know, with someone like, that's why Linewood, you know, when I, Robin approached me and we went for dinner and we had meeting after meeting and he said, why do you want to do it? And I said, I want to work with you. Yeah. And it was that. I didn't care about, you know, what he was offering me. I said, it really, you know, you and who was with me at the time was kicking me under the table going, shut up. And I'm going, <laughs> but it's not. It's about that I really want to work with you. And I know it's a great synergy and that's it. You know, if the right person comes along and that's what it's always been about yeah um so you know that's why i say never say never if something great's around the corner you know we'll always look at it i always think whenever i talk to you that you are understatedly ambitious <laughs> well, yeah, i mean because like you know you, yeah, you, maybe, you, yeah. you, you, you kind of you love your life and you're very yeah. open in what you say yeah but that, I think the whole thing is like, you know, never say never, because if something came up, then you couldn't help yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. if you thought, right, you know what, I'm done. Suddenly an yeah, opportunity yeah, comes yeah. up and you go, ah, I've yeah. got to do this. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm with you there. You know, if if some great restaurant in New York or some deal came yeah. up that you suddenly thought, actually, that's amazing. Why not? Yeah. You know, so it's just a case of actually thinking about what comes and let's see where we get to. All right. Okay. Now, the, the the final thing that we do with all of our guests, obviously, you know, you you have amazing restaurants. I like little secret places. Mm. That, so it's that place. It can be anywhere in the world that is your little go to happy place. It mm. it can be a restaurant, but it could be it could be a, a, a little cafe bar. It could be a noodle shop. It could mm. be a deli. It could yeah, yeah, be yeah. anything as well. Could be a greasy spoon. Yeah. 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 Um. Where are you going to take our listeners to? So I'm going to take you back to where I grew up, which is in Kent. We I grew up in a village called Hawkinge. And the school, when we started, we started our first years of secondary school in Folkestone, which is the big port, you know, Folkestone, Dover and all the rest of it. And Folkestone is one of those places that has gone downhill in the sense like a lot of seaside towns have yeah. really had no money invested in the They've sort of depleted, but it's back in the resurgence. And months ago, oh, God, God, probably even four or five years ago now, maybe. And I'm talking, yeah, there's lots of little places, but I love this place. And I always and I always talk about it when people ask about somewhere that I think, oh, God, I'd go there tonight. It's this place called the Folkestone Wine Company. Uh-huh. Now, it's probably as big as this room we're in, Simon, times two. Okay. Run by Polly, who's an ex-actress. Dave, her husband, who's the chef. So Dave's in the kitchen, Polly's front of house. That is it. You go up this alleyway and you think, where the hell am I going? And then actually you turn to this little, what looks like a tiny cafe and it's there. And when I say he's got a blackboard and one of the dishes on recently was Robert Carrier's terrine. You know (laughs) how the guy's cooking. You know, he's just cooking beautiful, classical, delicious food. He's made one of the best if not the best brewer I've ever tasted in. Wow. I've got to say that. Yeah. I think it was superb. He makes a tart to tan. You know, I've recommended Henry Harris to her. I've sent, you know, Marina that, you know, there's so many people I just say, go and try it. And he's cooking great, great food. So understated, Dave. I mean, Lovely. he'll hate all this. And if you cuddle him, he'll stand there like this and not want to <laughs> talk to you. Um, and Polly's all effervescent and brilliant. But I just think I love that place. And I sort of think also... You know, I could name you 30 restaurants that are all local to me in London or local, you know, central to London, and they're all busy. Yeah. Somewhere like this needs support. I mean, it's busy. Don't misunderstand me. They're doing well. But, you know, it's outside of London. We need to support all our homegrown talent, so to speak. 
and support our local seaside towns. And I just think this place is brilliant. So that, go there. That sounds and, amazing. Yeah, you could do it in a night. If you're in London, you can get the train down and come back the same night. That sounds amazing. It, it's funny though, isn't it? That that whole thing, that sort of post-COVID thing yeah. of people, I think, being, again, this sounds a very kind of arrogant, restaurateur thing to say. People being more appreciative of what they have yeah. and choosing where they spend their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the, I know, from, you know, Greens in particular being a, a neighbourhood restaurant, the love that we had during lockdown mm. was just incredibly humbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People totally. go, well, you know what, I need to support us because if not, then, you know, it could go. Yeah. Um, and then equally, like one of, one of your old guys, Gary Usher, yeah, yeah. who, you know, has become a good friend of mine because of you. Yeah. You know, all of his local restaurants, people going, I want my local restaurant to survive. Yeah, so yeah, I want yeah. to spend my money there. And, yeah. you know, your guys in folks, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. And, you know, I think the place is brilliant. And I love those two. And, you know, and it, it, they're just great. They're delightful. It's worth well, going. Brilliant. And as ever, it is a uh, joy to see you. Uh, Betty has it now been... Uh, Kept very Sleep. quiet and just been uh, stroking her very, very calmly, <laughs> but with slightly kind of anxious, possibly the most anxious I've ever seen Angela Hartnell. <laughs> uh, it's always a joy to see you. Uh, yeah, and I suppose one final thing is uh, Arsenal's uh, hopes for next season, uh, oh, another satisfactory ninth or tenth, do you think? Uh, shut up. I mean, I'd love to say fourth. I mean, we haven't been in the Champions League. It's embarrassing. Listen, I'm going to stick with it. I'm not a fair weather Arsenal fan. No. But um, I'd love to. I mean, my, I mean, my mum just sits and goes, Klopp. I mean, she's this is an 87-year-old woman who goes, Klopp, sex on legs, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I'd, listen, I want Arsenal to do well. I think, I think, you know, we've got longevity and we'll, we'll do fine. We will. We'll always be there somewhere hovering. So, all right. So, so the the challenge is then: Will Arsenal win the Premier League again before you and I retire? From yes. <laughs> That's a bet. <laughs> Fine. All right. Well, then we'll go out with CVG after. Yeah. Uh, and always a joy to see you. Likewise. Uh, and I will see you soon. Lots of love. Big kiss. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Angela for joining us on Grilling and, of course, to Betty, who rather stole the show. Angela is genuinely one of the most self-deprecating people I know, despite being one of the very best chefs our country has to offer. And do you really think she can't barbecue? Well, I'd snap up an invite to hers for a spot of grilled turbot and, of course, Neil's aubergine. Head to Weber.com for plenty more ideas about what you can achieve yourself when it comes to barbecuing. From smoked trout with lemon and herbs to pulled lamb with tzatziki and flatbread. And we've got a special offer for you at Weber.com forward slash grilling. If you want to improve your skills on the barbecue, Weber are offering you a discount to attend their Grill Academy. That's where you learn to impress your friends big time with your barbecuing expertise by learning from some serious pros. The offer is valid for Grill Academies in the UK. Enter the code GRILLING21, all in capitals, between the 6th of July and the 15th of October at Weber.com and get £50 off when you book two tickets on a course. You can find all the information you need at Weber.com forward slash grilling. Subscribe to Grilling on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us if you fancy it. We'll be back again next week talking to Ken Hom, who is genuinely one of my heroes and whose name came up more than once during season one, if you remember. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-strip production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. <laughs>